we've been probing in our Sunday morning services the humanity of Jesus through Hebrews 1 and 2. The idea that God, being the second person of the Godhead, became a genuine human being. That's what the Orthodox Church has always taught. But this doctrine that God became man has been under attack, especially over the last few centuries. Not the doctrine that Jesus was human. A lot of the critical scholars will admit that and different cults will admit that. But the doctrine that Jesus, though he was eternally God, became a human being, that he added humanity to deity. For example, maybe you've already had it happen to you. If not, you probably will. Two nice-looking, friendly people will show up at your door to talk to you about Jesus. And if you go deep into the conversation, you will discover that they believe Jesus was not God, but he was merely a God. In fact, Potentially, we could all become gods, just like Jesus became a god. So in their theology, Jesus was not adding humanity to deity, but adding deity to humanity. They say that the idea that Jesus is God did not come from the Bible. It came from the early church councils who taught the deity of Jesus. And the church has been following this false doctrine for all of these years. By the way, as an aside, if you're ever told that the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years, but suddenly our group has it right, be very suspicious, okay? Be very suspicious. Normally, if you start doing your homework with an open Bible, you'll say, you know what? The church has basically been teaching this orthodox theology. And, and, and through several denominations, in fact, even though there are differences in denominations, They've been teaching orthodox theology for a long time. So here you are listening to these two nice people at your door explain how Jesus is God and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I know there's a verse in the Bible that seems to clearly say that Jesus is God and then it comes into your mind. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is in the text. But when you open your Bible and read that verse to them, they will say, well, actually, you're misunderstanding that verse, just like the church has misunderstood it for 2,000 years. The verse does not say the Word was God. It says the Word was a God, just like we can be God's too. Now, at this point in the conversation, you may be a little perplexed because every translation of John 1, 1 you've ever read says the word was God. Unless you're reading the contemporary English version that says the word was truly God or the net Bible that says the word was fully God or the amplified Bible that says the word was God himself. And unless all of these translation committees of all of these versions in the English language are somehow part of a master plot to deceive the English-speaking world by mistranslating John 1.1, while every, every professor of New Testament in every seminary looks the other direction, then it stands to reason that the most obvious translation of John 1.1 is not the word was a God, but the word was God. Now, if you knew a few things about the Greek language, you might also remember that there really is no A in Greek. There's no indefinite article. It doesn't exist in the Greek language. They can't, they, a lot of people who say that think that there's an A in there in Greek, but there's no, that doesn't exist. They, they think this way because most of them don't know a thing about Greek. So to read John 1, 1, the word was a God is a matter of an interpretation, and an interpretation that apparently no English translator 
agrees with. Furthermore, if you read Koine Greek, you can see for yourself that the literal reading of John 1, 1 is, you ready for this? The word was with God and God was the word. That's the exact word order in the Greek. God was the word. In fact, this arguably is the most concise and unambiguous way in the Greek language to say that God, in fact, was the word, that they were equal with each other. The term God is applied to the word. Now, I imagine that most of you have considered this truth about the deity of Jesus, and and maybe you've already learned how to answer this argument of misusing John 1.1. 1, 1. And, and in fact, some of you might be like, you know, just tr- let somebody try to tell me that Jesus is not God. I am, I am locked and loaded. I am ready for action. But do you feel that way if somebody were to come along and tell you, well, Jesus wasn't really a human being? Are you locked and loaded for that? Probably not. Because in our day and age, it is far more likely to be challenged on the question of Jesus' deity rather than his humanity. And yet, and yet, the humanity of Jesus is one of the most essential doctrines of the New Testament. The New Testament demonstrates and proclaims the fact that Jesus was a genuine human being. Though Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit, Jesus was born like any other human child, given a human name, born into a human family, part of a human family tree. We have the tree in Matthew and and Luke. He grew to manhood like other children. Luke 2.52 says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, in other human beings. He showed all of the physical and emotional traits of being human. He was tempted. He had pain. He wept. He was thirsty. He was tired. He slept. In fact, remember how Jesus liked to refer to himself? The son of man. Literally, the son of anthropos. The son of a human being. And the question I've been posing as we've gone through Hebrews chapter 2 is, why? Why did it have to be this way? Why did Jesus have to become a human being in order for him to be our Savior? Why was it really necessary? I mean, it's amazing that he did that, but was it over the top? Did it really have to happen? And Hebrews chapter 2 answers this question, yes, in a very clear and profound way. Way. First, Jesus had to become human so that he could die for us. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, We see Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You can't kill a God. Jesus had to become human in order for him to die. Secondly, Jesus had to become human so that he could identify with us. And this is what we looked at last Lord's Day. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me if we know Jesus Christ, should make the founder, and I said last week, the best translation of that word for our understanding is the champion 
to make the founder or the champion of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That means they're from one stock. They're from one race, one blood. Jesus shares that humanity. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, that is brothers and sisters of the same human race. And not only brothers and sisters by blood, but for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are spiritually related to Christ as well as physically related to him. So Jesus is not ashamed of us. He does not redeem us and then pretend not to know us. He's not embarrassed about it. It's not like we come before the throne of God and Jesus is like, oh yeah, uh, Father, here's, here's somebody else I forgot to mention, you know. No, Jesus with confidence because of his work, not ours, presents us unashamedly before the Father. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And in fact, we will one day reign with him. That is an amazing truth. Now, there are two more answers to the question, why did Jesus have to become a human being? And I am clipping a lot of notes this morning so that we can finish both of them. And Lord willing, we're going to be back in Revelation next Lord's Day. Okay, you pray for me this week, and I will make sure, uh, if I can, that that will happen. Uh, But this morning, as we stand looking back on 2021 and looking forward to 2022, these two final reasons that Jesus had to become a human being sort of come together in my mind and they have profound implications for us right now. They give us hope not only for the future, but also for our lives day by day as we cling to Jesus Christ, this God-man, this God who became a human being. And I think you'll see exactly what I mean as we examine the third and fourth reasons that the second person of the Trinity had to become human like one of us. Reason number three has already been implied in the statement we considered last week that Jesus is the founder, or I said, the champion of our salvation. Because the champion steps forward to deliver his people. And the third reason Jesus had to become human is that so he could deliver us. And this is what he says in verses 14 through 16. So let's look at this passage. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I'm not going to have time to deal with verse 16, but this goes back to what Paul says, I think, that Abraham is the father of us all because Abraham did what we all do. He believed God and he was saved simply through his belief. Now, when we begin to read verses 14 through 16, we immediately encounter, I want you to see this, one of the most intense statements of Jesus' humanity that I think is in all of Hebrews chapter 2. Look what he's saying, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same thing. Now, who are these children he speaks of? Well, obviously, they're they're the children in the family of God. If you look back at the previous verses in Hebrews 2, I didn't point this out before, but there's a lot of family language 
going on to talk about Jesus sharing humanity with us. In verse 10, it says that Jesus is bringing many sons or many sons and daughters to glory. In verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And that's a general term, brothers and sisters. And in verse 13, he puts the words from Isaiah 8 on the lips of Jesus, referring to the children God has given me. So these are family with Jesus. They are brothers and sisters. And what do human family do? They share flesh and blood. We use this term. Now, he's my blood brother. He's my, he's my, they're my flesh and blood. I can't, I can't be disloyal to them. They're, they're family. These are the substances of humanity, flesh and blood. They are what humans are made of. They are what God the Father through Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about this? God the Father through Jesus Christ, bringing uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and Colossians 1 together. God the Father through Jesus Christ created humanity from the dust of the ground and fashioned it into a human being and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, and, And Genesis 2 says man became a living soul. Jesus took part in, he joined together with what he himself had created and became flesh and blood. His flesh was genuine human flesh. His blood was genuine human blood, just like ours. If Jesus ever fell down and scraped his knee, the injured place on his skin would swell and the blood would come out and the wound would have to be cared for because Jesus was human. If Jesus was ever sick, the immune system in his body would go to work just like ours to fight off the infection or the virus. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, was Jesus ever sick? Did he ever get sick? Now, that's a really good question. And I, I, when you answer questions like this, you might think they're sort of superfluous and we, we just think, you know, well, this is just, we can conjecture things. But some questions, even though you can't technically answer them, really show us what our theology is. Could Jesus ever have gotten sick? It tells us what we believe about his humanity. And we better be very careful how we answer this question. You may want to say, Jesus never got sick because Jesus is God. How could God ever be sick? Doesn't sickness come from the result of sin? And Jesus is sinless? So how could he be sick? Now, I would agree with one thing here. Sickness came into the world as a result of sin, but so did death. And remember, Jesus died for our sins and his body was subject, uh, subject to, the, to the blows and laceration and treatment that made it humanly possible for his spirit to be united to his physical form. And so he gave up his spirit on the cross. And this happened even though, as Peter puts it, he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22. So why would we think that prior to his death, Jesus' body was not also subjected to the attacks of viruses or bacterial infections or other illnesses? Why would we not suppose, for instance, that Jesus woke up one morning and Mary told Joseph, you know, I'm not going to let him go with you today. He's, I, he's not feeling well. We need to keep him home. We need, we, need, we need to get him better. That would not mean he's a sinner. It means he's human. It's part of his, his, his humiliation as the second person of the Godhead. And I'm not saying there's a verse in the Gospels that tells us Jesus was ever sick or had a cold or anything like that. But I am saying that we should not be surprised to learn one day that Jesus had a time when he was sick 
on earth because he shared our flesh and blood. He became a genuine human being and lived in a world cursed by sin. This was part of his humiliation. It's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make that Jesus became fully human. Now, I want to go one step further here just to warn you that there are some well-meaning preachers and teachers who will say that while the body of Jesus was human, his blood was divine. Some of you might have heard that before. In fact, I heard it explained in a sermon once that the flesh of Jesus was inherited biologically through his mother, Mary, but his blood he inherited through the Father, so it was sinless blood. This is the kind of thing that gets passed around on the internet that some people read and they believe it. Okay, don't believe stuff that you just read off the internet without checking with me first. And uh, I, I can tell you the truth on that. No. But, but some will talk about the incorruptible blood of Jesus, which is actually a misinterpretation of 1 Peter chapter 1, as you can see easily by reading an English Bible. And I've even heard a preacher proclaim that Jesus' blood never touched the ground when it dripped from the cross, that it, that it miraculously went up to heaven as it dripped off the cross. This, is, this kind of stuff is, is preached. It's sometimes preached at, at camps, and you've got to watch out for that kind of thing and uh, correct the theology of the young people before they leave. And then there are many among Pentecostal or charismatic leaders who say that Christians have Jesus' sinless blood in them when they get saved, and that's why they have the power to resist, resist sin. And everything I've actually talked about in the last few examples here, all of it is actually false doctrine. And I mean, I can perfectly understand the desire to greatly honor the blood of Jesus Christ because it was shed for us on the cross. We, we dare not demean the, the idea of the blood of Christ. But we have to be very careful lest we go beyond what the Bible actually says and end up contradicting the Bible. We can rush to exalt the divinity of Jesus on the one hand, but unwittingly demean the humanity of Jesus on the other. And this is very important. Because if Jesus' blood is not human, that Jesus is not fully human. And to say that Jesus was not fully human, that he's flesh and blood, it's just as much of a heresy to say that he's not fully God. In fact, 1 John 4, 2 and 3 says that a person who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. And the author of Hebrews is making the point that in order for Jesus to deliver us, his genuine humanity is essential just as essential as his genuine deity. It was because of his humanity, in fact, that he was able to deliver us by dying for us. Deliver us from what? Well, I want to summarize what it says here in the text. I would put it this way. Deliver us from the tyranny of death. The tyranny of death. That is a death with no hope. A death that separates us only, uh, that not only from this life, but from the life of God, condemning us to darkness and eternal judgment. This death, Paul says in Romans 5, 14, reigned over the world. It held people in bondage. Death makes people slaves. And notice the features of this death. First of all, the text talks about what I will say here as the prince of death the devil. This is the tyrant himself because verse 14 says that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He's the prince of death. When it says that the devil has the power of death, it's a present tense description of the devil, Satan. 
It literally means that he wields a tyrannical power and authority and a dominion over the world characterized by death. He's not saying that Satan can kill anybody he wants at any time he wants outside of God's control. That's not what the Bible teaches. Otherwise, probably we would all be dead already. But it means that the power that Satan is allowed to exercise over the world is marked by, characterized by death. Because death is separation. And everything the devil is doing all the time is aimed at separating people from this world so that they go out into eternity without Christ. The devil was there in the garden in the form of the serpent when he approached Eve with the very purpose of bringing death into the world. Because God had commanded, right? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that or the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the devil had no dominion over death at that time. Death was the promised judgment from God, held out as a warning against sin. But the devil usurped the power of death by seducing our first parents to sin, by lying to Eve. You will not surely die. That's a lie. That's not going to happen to you. And when Adam and Eve decided to disobey God after the devil's deceit had done its work, they cut off themselves from their relationship with God. They were separated from him, the immediate death. And their bodies began the long process of separation from this earth, physical death, that resulted from spiritual death. As Paul says in Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through, the one, human, through one human being. It says by one man, but that word man is anthropos, it's human being. Sin came into the world through one human being and death came through sin. So death spread to all human beings because all human beings sinned. And from the garden onward, the devil has ever existed to bring every descendant of Adam and Eve into the dust of death. The Bible shows that the devil introduced death into the world through sin, that he tempts people to commit sin, then he accuses them before God, arguing that they should be cast into hell or judged eternally because they are sinners, that they should receive punishment. Arthur Pink, who's a Reformed theologian born in the 19th century, had a unique way of summarizing truths. And he explains how the devil can have the power of death. I like what he says here. He says, "...inasmuch as the devil is the one who brought about the downfall of our first parents." by which the sentence of death has been passed upon all their posterity, inasmuch as he goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, inasmuch as he challenged God to inflict upon the guilty the sentence of the law, and inasmuch as even believers are before their regeneration under the power of darkness, dead in trespasses and sins, yet walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil may be said to have the power of death. The devil is the... the the one who is the, the tyrant, the one who wields this power. But there's a second idea here, the power of death itself, the instrument of death. There's a power that he speaks of here in verse 14 where he calls it the power of death. And Satan uses this instrument to beat humanity into submission because every one of us is subject to death apart from the intervention of God through the return of Christ. We all share the experience of death. We were created for incorruption. 
but now our plight is corruption. It is appointed unto men once to die, the author of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 9, verse 17. And after this, the judgment. And this death is not only physical, its implications are that it's not just for this time, it's ultimately spiritual. Its implications are forever. Apart from the intervention of God, we are doomed to spend eternity suffering death. Separation of the presence of God and the lake of fire called the second death, the ultimate death. So Satan is the great tyrant and death is his instrument. And how does he wield the instrument of death? I'll tell you how he he wields it. He uses it to strike fear into the hearts of the stoutest people, putting them into bondage. The third feature of this death then is the fear of death, which is the slavery that it puts people into. Verses 14 and 15 say that it was the fear of death that made Satan's victims subject to lifelong slavery. You see that at the end of verse 15. For death really is our ultimate worry as human beings. Thanatophobia. It's the fear of death. In secular psychology, there is this recognition that people have a fear of death. You don't have to be a secular psychologist to recognize that. But that's what psychologists talk about. They talk about the fear of death. They apply it to things. It's, it's really a big study. In fact, you know what psychologists say? One of the going theories of human activity, the distractions we engage in, the hobbies we have, our focus on work, our goals, our achievements, or even our religion, what we pour our lives into, these, they say, are all ways we cope with ultimately the fear of death. They're distractions. We don't have to think about the end. That's why people who have to go to funerals who don't know the Lord, they're very sobered by that. And a lot of them go out and they start drinking afterwards because they want to just erase it. They want to forget about it. They don't don't like to look on death. Ernst Becker published a relatively recent work that explains his terror management theory. Terror management theory or TMT says that humans must constantly deal with an internal conflict, the basic desire to live against the certainty of death. Their drive to achieve personal goals are motivated by the awareness of their mortality, he says. Now think of the irony. We were created as human beings to rule over the earth, to enjoy life. And instead, the human race became to the tyranny of the devil slaves to our existence living in fear of death. And sadly, it is true. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. There is no release. There is no freedom. The human race is doomed. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 14. It says that through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. The devil, to destroy is a word that means to render powerless or ineffective. In other words, he took away the devil's weapon. Satan can wage war against believers in Christ, but he has nothing left that he can hurt us with. And because of this, as verse 15 says, he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're not subject to lifelong slavery anymore. We're delivered. And this word delivered is a word that means to liberate, to set free. It was a word used in the ancient world to speak of releasing a slave setting him free. 
Jesus became human so that he could deliver us. He's the only, only human being who ever existed who actually did not deserve to die. And yet he submitted himself to the power of death. And in doing so, he shocked and dismayed the devil and the forces of darkness when he, being sinless, conquered death and came back to life through the resurrection. And now those of us who believe on him, who can claim his death and resurrection for our own, we are rescued from fear and bondage of death. We still pass from this world in death unless the Lord returns for us because of the fall. But the devil can no longer lord it over us through death. We don't have to fear death. For we live eternally, even as the Lord Jesus Christ lives eternally. We escape the clutches of death in Christ. Satan, the tyrant, and death, his instrument, and the fear which enslaves us has all been conquered through Christ, which means that if you're a child of God this morning, a brother or sister in Christ, you no longer have anything to fear. Death for us is not a separation from God or the family of God. Death is a glorious transition into the presence of our Savior, our brother, our champion. Jesus made it possible for us to be delivered in this way when he became one of us so that he could die for us and deliver us. And so as Paul says, death, where is your sting? It's gone. In grave, where is your victory? Death has no sting. Satan has no weapon against us. The grave no longer holds something over us because we have been forever delivered through Jesus Christ. That is something to shout about. That gives us hope. It gives us confidence right now for everything that we are facing. Now, I want to rush on here to the fourth reason that Hebrews 2 says that Jesus Christ had to become a human being. And it is this, so that he could represent us so that he could represent us. And here in verses 17 and 18, we see that he represents us as high priest. Joe, Joe Provenzano mentioned this a little bit. Uh, he was ending Sunday school this morning. And here is one of the first, or the first passage where he begins to talk about Jesus as a high priest. In fact, he mentions Jesus as a high priest here in verse 17, and he doesn't get off the subject until the end of the whole big explanation of Jesus uh, in, in chapter 12. So we start in verse 17 where he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. It was, it was a necessity. He had to become human. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is all summarized in the idea of Jesus as representing us, being there for us, taking us before the throne of God, standing in for us. This is what Jesus does for us as our caring and loving high priest. And there's so much to unpack in these verses, but I just want to hit a few highlights here as we move to the conclusion. Remember, a priest is a person who goes before God on your behalf because you can't go before God on your own. You're not holy enough. You can't approach him. You're not righteous enough. In the Old Testament, God told Moses, no man can look on me and live. 
in order for us to have access to God the Father, we need a perfect priest who intercedes for us or represents us before the throne of God so that we can be welcomed into God's presence. Under the Old Testament law, the priests were to come before the Lord on behalf of the people, but they always had to come by way of animal sacrifice, right? Approaching God was such a serious matter. There had to be a substitutional death in order for people to come before him, a death that covered or atoned for sin. But this death could never completely remove sins. So day after day, week after week, animal sacrifices were offered and the smoke from those sacrifices went up day after day, day after day, until Jesus became our high priest so that he could represent us before God once and for all not with the blood of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews says, but with his own blood, offering his death to God as a sacrifice for our sins, making animal sacrifices no longer necessary. And this is what the author of Hebrews has been driving at for the entire chapter. Do you see what I'm saying? This idea of his representing us as our own person, as as a human being like us, standing in for us, which he had to be human to do that. This is what he's been driving at for all of these reasons. In order to be a once and for all kind of priest, he would have to offer a perfect sacrifice. Jesus became human so he could die for us and be that sacrifice. Then Jesus became a human being so that he could identify with us because he could not truly represent us before God as our priest unless he was one of us. And Jesus became a human being so he could deliver us. And this act of deliverance, his death and resurrection, which conquered sin, is the very act he presents before the Father on our behalf, making intercession for us as our priests. And finally, Jesus became human so he could represent us before the throne of God. This is the central theological idea in the letter of Hebrews, Jesus as our high priest. In these first verses, which speak of the high priest of Jesus, the author makes two observations about Jesus' character and two observations about his activity. I want to just highlight those for you for just a second. First of all, his character. Notice in verse 17, he is a merciful high priest. That's what kind of high priest he is. His mercy implies compassion and love and grace toward those whom he represents. He's not aloof to our needs. He knows all about them. He doesn't hesitate to help us. He's merciful. He gladly represents us before the Father because we cannot represent ourselves. But not only is a merciful high priest, notice in verse 17, he's a faithful high priest. And this gives us great assurance Because Jesus can be a merciful high priest, compassionate and having a desire to help his brothers and sisters, but his faithfulness assures that he will continue to be this way. Right now, this very moment, I don't know if you've thought about it since you've sat down, since you've come into worship, but this very moment, Jesus is before the Father's throne representing you if you are a a child of God. He's representing you before the throne this minute. He'll be doing it tomorrow. He'll be doing it all through 2022. He'll be doing it for the rest of your life. And let me tell you this, he will be doing it for all eternity. He's an eternal high priest. If he ever stops representing us, if he ever stops bringing us before the throne of God, giving us the right to be there through his own death and resurrection, we are lost for all eternity. He is forever our high priest. And he represents us. The author of Hebrews will say in chapter 7 that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He is merciful and his mercy knows no end because he's faithful. This is the character of Jesus, our high priest. But the author also makes two observations about the activity of Jesus, our high priest. At the end of verse 17, he says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of people. Now, what is propitiation? We need to make sure we have these, these great theological terms locked into our minds whenever we encounter them in scripture. But propitiation, simply put, is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. When the priest brought the sacrifice to the altar, it was a sacrifice that appeased the righteous wrath of God upon sin. It got rid of God's anger on sin, allowing the one who brought the sacrifice to come into God's presence because God can't just say sentimentally, well, you know, they can't help their sin. I'll just forgive them. No, no, that doesn't work that way. God is holy. Sin has to be punished. Somebody has to die. Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people by offering himself to satisfy the righteous wrath of God upon sin once and for all. God looks upon the sacrifice of his son and he pardons our sin. He looks on Christ and pardons us. But there's another activity involved in Jesus' high priesthood that's emphasized here. If you look at verse 18, it says that he helps those who are tempted. And notice how he puts this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he is able, or because he, was, he suffered, he is able. In other words, Jesus, through his suffering and temptation, became able to do something that he was not able to do before. That's the stunning thing about Hebrews. Jesus is always becoming something that he was not before through his humanity and through his suffering and ministry as a human being. What he accomplished as a human being involved his temptation and suffering. And without that temptation and suffering, he could not have aided us as our priest, our representative. He was tested to the limit and he remained faithful. And now he is qualified to give help to those who are tested. I think the author of Hebrews is saying that to those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows what we are facing. He faced death and conquered it. But it wasn't just when Jesus went to the cross that he faced hardship and suffering. The cross was the ultimate example of his hardship and suffering. Jesus knew the life of hardship with challenges his whole ministry. And that is why I think the writer of Hebrews can say in chapter four, these verses that we are very familiar with, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where we have our representative there bringing us before the Father's throne, saying, yes, you belong here and you're welcome here and we're not ashamed of you. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in every time of need. So this is what the humanity of Jesus holds for us. It offers us hope for the future because we know that Christ has delivered us from our greatest enemies, sin and death and the tyranny of the devil. I, I don't know that we appreciate this as much as we should because I think we grow used to the idea of our salvation. But everything in your life can be a complicated mess. Family problems, financial problems, 
health, education, occupation. I mean, you're probably thinking of categories I'm not naming here, just stuff where you're like, it's all messed up. And sometimes you get overwhelmed. And you're like, is there nothing going right in any part of my life? But if you are delivered through the death and resurrection of Christ, think about this, your most desperate need that makes all of your other needs seem small by comparison, your most desperate need has already been met through Jesus Christ. You are right with God. You are delivered. And you are just waiting while you serve God to transition into the very presence of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus accomplished through his humanity gives us this confidence and courage for anything that lies ahead. But the humanity of Jesus also offers us comfort every single day because we know that we can take any need to Jesus and he knows how to meet that need because he has been there. And I know we hear stuff like this and it makes nice poetry, doesn't it? But this is the emphasis of this incredibly rich theological chapter that Jesus, because he was human, knows everything we're going through. He really does. God did not know experientially what we go through until Jesus went through it himself. And he did that for us because he loved us and wanted to redeem us. Some of you already know that this year will hold for you many new challenges And others of you are going to be challenged in ways you have no idea yet. And I say this to you, I'm thinking of the same thing for me. And it always happens. There's something that's going to come up, something out of the blue. Are you always consciously aware that you have a human brother in the second person of the Godhead who has promised never to leave you or forsake you? And not only does he indwell us, but he knows exactly what we need experientially. For there's no pain that we can feel that he has not felt. There is no loss, no sorrow, no suffering, no fear that he has not faced. And yet he remains sinless and faithful. So why do we sometimes scramble to solve problems that are too big for us or, or go into despair or wonder what to do? Jesus has already provided everything we need to come before him and seek his help in time of need. And all of this he's able to do because he humbled himself being in God and took upon himself humanity also to become one of us. He did this so he could die for our sins, so he could identify with us, so he could deliver us, and so that he could represent us. So let's honor him this coming year by drawing near to him, as the verse says, with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father.